bring to you the executive director of the March on Washington, the man who organized this whole thing, Mr. Bayard Rustin. Ladies and gentlemen, the first demand is that we have effective civil rights legislation, no compromise, and the right to vote. What do you say? Hey there, beautiful people. Welcome back to Rustin, the podcast, your personal companion to the film Rustin. I'm Trayvell Anderson. On this episode, we're looking at one of the more crucial elements of the film and of the civil rights movement as a whole, the young people, the youth. One of the parts I love so much about this movie is if you're not paying attention, you might miss the fact that the people who are actually putting this march on are the folks who are in the background. They're the young people, they're the women. One of those characters in particular is Joyce Ladner, who at the time was responsible for getting people to the march. Joyce? 40 Freedom Trains, and thanks to the UAW six chartered flights, bringing in workers from Chicago, Grand Rapids, Flint, Detroit, Syracuse, Rochester, and New York. Joyce Ladner began her freedom fight for social justice as a teenager when she helped organize an NAACP youth chapter in her hometown. We were not chasing fame by any means. We didn't even think about the future because we were young enough to live right in the moment and oftentimes from one crisis to another. We're going to come back to Miss Ladner and that living history, but first, I want to turn back time to my tenure at Morehouse College that I told you about in the first episode. That's where I got my first lesson in Byatt Rustin 101. What historical symbols do for people is that they create fantasies about who those people were and then who you can be. That's Dr. Marcus Lee, postdoctoral fellow in LGBT studies at Princeton University. My junior year, I became a resident advisor on campus, and I met this group of younger queer people who, let's just say, they were not playing games. They were out, they were open, they were not interested in hiding or cowering to the sentiment of homophobia that, you know, colored my experience. And in that group, I met Kenneth Pass, Fatima Jamal, and Marcus Lee. I came out during New Student Orientation. Fun fact. I feel like I had a moment where I was sort of like, this stage in my life is going to be one that is going to be exciting for me. I'm not going to be hiding anything, and that just is what it is. And I found that that prospect really terrified other students. Back in the day... Marcus, Kenny, and Fatima, they were the leaders of this group on campus called Safe Space. They were basically sort of like a gay-straight alliance, but there weren't really straight people, you know what I mean? And they were organizing around making sure that the campus felt safer for those of us who were members of the LGBTQ community. One of their campaigns involved adding Byatt Rustin's portrait to the prestigious Hall of Honor inside our campus's MLK Chapel. We decided that we were an extension of his legacy and that Morehouse needed to include him in its sort of legacy-building work. 
Through their organizing, I came to know more about this man who was so pivotal to the March on Washington. The fact that I had never learned or heard of this man, now three years into my time at what is invariably the school of Martin Luther King Jr., it was just really wild to me. Bayard Rustin's historical profile is not as flashy as some of the other historical figures that we really, you know, hold close to our hearts, right? So Bayard Rustin has no, like, bombastic, I have a dream speech or a ballad or the bullet speech, something that's really iconic that you can always point to and say, that's Bayard's thing. There's the March on Washington and these other projects that he was involved in, but he was often behind the scenes, right? So you don't really have these epic moments where he is in the spotlight that one can turn to to herald and say, you know, this is a reflection of this person's importance. And I think that that then made it difficult to raise his profile on campus and, you know, sort of more broadly, right? Why is this person who is behind the scenes a person that we should take close to our hearts as if he were an icon, right? Why make an icon out of a shadow figure is really the thing that I think we were facing. I wanted to sit down with Marcus for two reasons. One, he's one of the best people to explore the challenges of asserting Bayard's legacy on Morehouse's campus with. And two, I know he'll also be able to break down what that experience tells us, perhaps, about why we're only just now getting a feature-length film of this scale today. To get us started, Dr. Lee... <laughs> that just makes me laugh. I love that for you. Why is that a funny... That, you, that should because roll I, off the tongue. Because I knew you before you were Dr. Lee, okay? Uh-huh. All right. But, okay, so to get us started... Let's kind of set the scene for our time at Morehouse. What was it like to be your Black queer self on that campus in, what, the 2010? Yes, yes. Okay, so I started Morehouse in 2011. And I was so excited to be there. I felt like, I don't know, I was entering some sort of grand legacy. I remember leaving King Chapel, which was our sort of auditorium, and thinking to myself, oh my gosh, this is the place that I need to be. And then I started to learn more about what was happening on campus and what was not happening on campus. And we should say some of that, some of that more, right? Like Morehouse has a particular history when it comes to queer folks yes. on campus. Right. It's not great as you might assume. Right. And you were part of a group of of students younger than me who right. were, to be quite honest, just not taking that shit anymore. Yeah. And you're very right. Like y'all were fully unfolded in yourselves (laughs) in ways that the rest of us, many of us, weren't. And so y'all were part of kind of this group that really kind of reinvigorated Safe Space as a collective on campus. Could you tell people a little bit about Safe Space and what having kind of that group meant for, for us? Sure, yeah. So Safe Space was our, what we called a gender and sexuality collective. We didn't want to call it a gay straight alliance because... That just wasn't what it was. And a lot of the programming was around 
fostering inclusion on campus, especially toward the beginning. I remember we were doing programs around race, religion, and sexuality. You spearheaded a really iconic program that I think still (laughs) goes on called Closet Cases, which was about people's coming out stories. And I remember the rooms will be packed of people of all sorts who were so fascinated with just hearing people's stories. Um, And I think it really made a difference in terms of how people saw sexuality on campus and the extent to which they took it seriously as, you know, an issue among us. Um, so it was really exciting to to reinvigorate the group. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So we both learned about Bi Rustin while we were at Morehouse. Yes. I learned through you all. You learned through screening this documentary, Brother yes. Outsider, that everyone should check out. Yes. And you all decided to create... One, this program was called the Byard Rustin Scholars. Um, I want you to talk a little bit about that. And then you all also set on this path to try to get a portrait of Byard Rustin into what is called the Hall of Honor at Morehouse. Talk a little bit about that. Morehouse as a school, as an institution, was really big on legacy building, let's say. So there was a King Legacy Scholars Program. We decided that there needed to be a Bayard Rustin Scholars Program. There were, in King Chapel, portraits of various really important figures, civil rights figures in particular. We decided that Bayard Rustin needed to be a part of that gallery, right? To include Bayard Rustin in this Hall of Honor was about creating this new fantasy, new lane, new something that students could be a part of and take pride in uh, and draw inspiration from. We just sought to have this symbolic recognition of who he was. He was an important Mm -hmm. figure. He was important to us. Um, We wanted him there. So I think it was just a part of trying to be a part of Morehouse's legacy building project. Right. And part of it, right, is is Morehouse loves Martin Luther King Jr. Yes. Right. We've got this statue of him in yes. front of the MLK Chapel. And we all know that Bayard Rustin, as as we're learning about him, right, we we figure out that Bayard Rustin was pivotal to this man in so many ways, right. but especially the March on Washington. And so why not also have him recognized, you know, in, in that lineage, in that history sure. um, as well? What would you say were some of the challenges around trying to assert his importance, his historical relevance yeah. on campus writ large, but also specifically in this effort to get him into the Hall of Honor? I think that some parts of the administration just didn't think that he was a very important figure in that way, right? So it wasn't always articulated as like a specific homophobia. Sometimes it was just, you know, mm, is he really that important of a guy or is he just some guy, right? I mean, to, to publicly declare someone's sexuality, to say that someone is gay is to sort of like undercut their iconography. At least that's what it was at that time, mm-hmm. right? How can you say that someone is important and then also say, you know, that their sexuality is a part of their importance? It was almost mm-hmm. like an oxymoron for people to, you know, think about Byard Rustin in that way. So I totally agree, yeah. So this portrait of Byard Rustin 
did finally end up making it into the Hall of Honor in 2018, a few years after you and I graduated from Morehouse. Could you talk a little bit just about how that experience, working with the Byatt Rustin Scholars, working on this effort to get him recognized by the college in, in a formal way such as this, what it did for you? How do you think it, it changed or impacted you um, and perhaps led to the work that you do today? It was really formative for me. The first thing is just that I think it gave me some sense of pride as a, a young person, right? Uh, it gave me a sense of some sort of historical legacy to be a part of. I mean, you know, we saw other changes, right? We got a crown form in Bayard Rustin's name. And so, in theory, that each year, at least one crown form is dedicated to talking about issues of sexuality. It just creates new opportunities for especially young people to imagine who they can be. Mm-hmm. Well, with that, thank you, Marcus Lee. Dr. Marcus Lee, get it right, me, please, for joining us. Okay, cut it out. <laughs> y'all get y'all PhDs and y'all start acting out, okay? <laughs> thank you for joining thank us. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Marcus Lee, postdoctoral fellow at Princeton University. You will definitely hear from him again. But now I want to turn to one of the OGs of movement organizing. Dr. Joyce Ladner is an activist, a scholar, a sociologist whose work, alongside that of her sister, Dory Ladner, inspired the events you saw in the film. Miss Ladner, thanks so much for joining us on Rustin the Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you? I am doing wonderful. I'm looking so forward to this conversation, considering the hands-on role that you had on the March on Washington. So you hear that there is this plan to have all these people convene in Washington, D.C., and you have to help figure out how to organize and, and get them there. What was going through your mind at that particular point? I looked on the march as a way, number one, for us to appeal to a national audience and to tell our story so that that we would gain support because then, up to then, the movement was confined to the South. The second was people in the movement were so beleaguered, so exhausted, so tired. One of my goals was to raise as much money as possible to try, try to bring as many of them as possible to Washington so that they would see that they were not alone. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that. I want us to go back to the March on Washington. You helped, you know, in the office, helping to organize transportation and various other logistics. Tell me a little bit about how you first met Byard Rustin. What was that experience like? What did you what do you remember your first impression being of him? I went to the office with Rochelle Horowitz. And Rochelle introduced me. She said, Byard, this is uh Joyce Ladner. And he, he was very friendly and warm and he said, Oh, welcome. And you know, I, I just felt so enveloped by love, you know. Mm. And I felt more confident. You know, it was this tall, very handsome guy with salt and pepper hair. And 
And I wondered, where did he get that British accent? I wondered if he <laughs> was from Britain in the, at first. But he, he was so friendly and so warm. And he made all of us feel very welcome. I was just a lowly civil rights activist, 19 years old, as I mentioned. But he always listened when I spoke up in a staff meeting as he did everyone else. And he didn't sort of put me off to the side, like or him and me by saying, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah Joyce, yeah, yeah, Joyce. But he, he listened intently. Mm. And he would fold my concerns off into the larger conversation. Rochelle told me that Bayer considered me very reliable. And I got that from my mother, <laughs> always <laughs> told us, to follow through on the commitment, you know. But he was so warm and so gregarious and invited us to his apartment for parties, you know? I actually was going to ask, you know, as you all are organizing, living out history, even though you don't necessarily know that you're living out history, how did y'all unwind after a long day? What did fun look like for you all? Well, there wasn't much time to unwind. The work consumed us. Mm. Sunday was uh, generally our day off. We worked six days a week, and it was all tied up in the work. It was the work. Bobby Dillon used to come to our apartment to see Dory, my sister, and there were two sofas. He'd be sitting on one of them, serenading her or trying out new material. All I wanted was for him to get up and go home so I could pull out the (laughs) couch and go to sleep. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I was tired and I was sleepy. And I had to wait for him to finish singing or visiting. (laughs) Wow, I love that story. I love that story. So you mentioned that Bayard was, you know, super inviting, super welcoming to you all, super gregarious. I'm wondering what your impression was of some of the other leaders at that time who are also featured in the film, A. Philip Randolph, Roy Wilkins, Adam Clayton Powell. What was your your experience working with, with them, if at all? I didn't have much direct experience working with them. They came to the office for meetings of what was called the Big Six. Uh, they were the principals. Mr. Randolph came to the, to the office more often, and he was a saint. I'm sorry, sir, but what happened in there? Uh, they voted to remove Bayard as director. Son of a bitch! My first order of business was to reappoint him as my deputy director, putting him fully in charge. I mean, I adored him. He had that faraway look in his eyes, like he had seen so much. Mm. And had experienced so much. And whenever he came to the office, I made sure that I got to see him, you know. He would come mostly to meet with Bayard. Uh, But I adored him so much. And I looked up to him. Rod Wilkins, head of the NAACP. For decades, the NAACP has been legally leading the charge. And now you're proposing a hundred thousand black folks invade Washington, D.C. Have you talked to Martin about this? Well... I did not like him because we and students looked upon the NAACP as they tried to tame us. Mm, mm-hmm. 
they didn't think very much of us, and they called us radical and irresponsible. Mm-hmm. And we called them old, conservative, <laughs> state who believed in only one strategy, and that was through the courts. Mm-hmm. Whenever Dr. King came to the office for the meetings of the Big Six, he would come back to where the staff were and stick his head in the door and, and thank us for what we were doing. We must not relent in our commitment to the country and to the race. And that is the reason for the timely nature of this most improbable, yet most essential endeavor. I had met him before, too. I met him in uh, fall of 61 when he came to my campus. Mm. And I took a picture with him. Uh, but he was, he was very warm and just a regular guy, very regular. There were two women. They weren't officially members of the Big Six, but... But Dr. Anna Arnold Hedgeman mm-hmm. was at the office all the time doing outreach with the churches. And the other person was Dr. Dorothy Height, who was, had just become head of the National Council of Negro Women. In retrospect, her organization, National Council, should have been considered part of the Big Six. But I wasn't socially conscious about the roles of women. Mm, mm -hmm. I grew up under such severe, severe racism in Jim Crow that I was more concerned about the oppression of black people in general. And I didn't single out women, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You understand what I'm saying? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And I think, and I I, I think to your point, right, at least what I know about that time period was that it was very much so we are all fighting for the collective Black community and not necessarily fighting for Black women, but it's like Black people. Um, so I can definitely understand that not being, you know, kind of a, a, a front of mind consideration. And there's a there's a scene in the film with Dr. Hedgeman, played by CCH Pounder, in which she speaks up a little bit for right. the role and the presence of women. I look at this program, I do not see one woman's name. Not Ella Baker or Diane Nash. Not Dorothy Height or Gloria Richardson. Marilee Evers, Rosa Parks. Not, 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 not. For you, as somebody who was as hands-on and as involved in the organizing as you were, how does that make you feel? You know, as like someone who was there to know that it's just these, you know, one or two people who are really kind of credited with with the March on Washington. When I was a lot younger, I was very angry about it. We knew that it took a multitude of people on the ground to make movements work, to organize movements, to sustain them. And most of the people who were involved were, at that level, were women, you know? Mm-hmm. Community-based women who were the ones who could give you a place to stay. But, you know, men led and women worked. Mm. But, you know, if you go to a Baptist church, Black Baptist church, you see that the sisters in the church and the congregation are the ones who... Mm-hmm. Of making things move. You know what I mean? You understand mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I completely understand it. And I think, you know, as we now, right, are beginning to think, you know, more deeply about the civil rights era, where I feel like younger generations were a lot more interested in making sure that, you know, the women who were very pivotal in part of the movement, you know, get you all's flowers um, in, in, in some of the ways that, you know, the, the men do. You mentioned that, you know, there were a lot of young people kind of on the team helping with the organizing and that in particular with Roy Wilkins, you know, many of you all were seen as like radicals or revolutionaries. In the film, we see this moment in which I believe it's the night before the March on Washington where John Lewis's speech is being changed because some folks believe it's a little too radical, a little too out there. How do you remember that playing out in real life? I remember very well. First of all, John flew up from Atlanta a few days before we went down to Washington for the march. I read the speech. He showed it to Rochelle Horowitz. I think he showed it to my sister, uh, Eleanor Holmes Norton, Cortland Cox, and of course, to Bayard. Um, and Tom Kahn. Now, Tom added a section that if we do not get our freedom, we will have no choice but to march through the South the way General Sherman did, Mm. burning everything in its wake or something very radical. I thought it was cool. I thought, I said, yeah, this is (laughs) absolute. This is what we're going to (laughs) do. We came down to to D.C. on on the train the day before the march. Cortland Cox saw copies of Whitney Young's speech were out on a table in the lobby of the hotel. And he said, we should put John's speech out there, too. And he went and got copies of the speech. And as soon as they (laughs) hit the table, all hell broke loose. Mm. The Archbishop of Washington said that he would not give the prayer the next day at the march, if the language were not changed. Mm. Then the White House got involved in it. Burke Marshall, head of the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department, demanded that it be changed. And John was just as obstinate as he could be. You know, we all said, no, this is our speech. These are our experiences. And No one has the right to tell us what he can say because these are our lived experiences. After John let it be known he was not going to change the speech, King met with him and urged him to change the language. Not to make it overbearingly compromising, but to change the tone. Byard did the same. And then A. Philip Randolph spoke to John and he said, John, you know, I tried to organize the March on Washington in the 1940s and we've come too far. So please consider, you know, changing the tone. And that was when John agreed to. Cortland Cox, John, Jim Foreman, who was executive secretary of SNCC, his wife Mildred, and I, found a place in the back of the Lincoln Memorial and sat on the floor 
and found new language. Wow. We were still, you know, pretty much pissed off. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. What I find interesting about like this bit of history is that in terms of how we remember the March on Washington, we remember King and we remember the I Have a Dream speech. We might you know, remember a little bit of John Lewis's um, final speech? Because like you mentioned, they they were leading and doing work in that particular capacity. I think when folks take a deeper look at how so much actually went down throughout that particular era, um, it was women who were, who were, you know, the boots on the ground, if you will, in a, right. in a lot of cases, making things happen. You spoke about not realizing you were making history while you were in the thick of organizing. But what do you remember about the weeks after the march? Like, how did you feel? After the march, we got back to Mississippi where I went back to college to finish my senior year. And one Sunday morning, one of the girls in my dorm ran upstairs and shouted, they just bombed a church in Birmingham. And we rushed off to watch television. And eventually, uh, soon thereafter, there was a special news bulletin that came on. And I had a crisis of faith at that point, if you might call it that, because we, although I knew that the March on Washington was not going to solve all the problems, I left the march on a high note because I saw all these 250,000 people. I stood on the podium and looked out at them. And that was an incredible sight for anyone, but for me as a 19-year-old young woman, it was a sight to behold. I felt that these people have come here to support us. Barely two weeks afterwards, roughly two weeks afterwards, um, this bombing occurred. About 20-some of us SNCC civil rights workers went to Greenwood, Mississippi, and got on that bus and went to the funeral. We spent the first night in the dorms at Miles College. And I will never forget seeing the guards on campus with shotguns because they had been threatened with being bombed. And the next day, we got up early and went over to 16th Street Baptist Church and we stood there in front of the church and I looked up and saw all these white policemen that had their guns trained on us below. They had rifles or shotguns or whatever. And we were a peaceful crowd. Uh, King and the others went inside the church, but there were as many people outside the church as there were inside. And they had um, a sound system so we could hear the, the service in the church. But that was horrible. That was, as I said, a crisis in faith. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So 60 years after the March on Washington, you know, I guess my last question for you is, what is your message? What is your, you know, what are your words of encouragement for the young people today, right, who are picking up where 
you and your sister and and the other folks who got the March on Washington going, what is your message to, to young folks today about freedom work? My message is that one person can make a difference. Hmm. If you want to see change, that you are the person who should initiate it and don't sit back and wait for it. Also, when you're in the heart of it, you don't know what the long-term outcome will be. Mm -hmm. But the important thing is to pick up the gauntlet wherever you are and, and do something. What we did was we took a movement to a certain point, then the next generation picks up and takes it to another point. But you'll never, ever achieve the end goal. But what you have to do is to ensure that that you leave the world better than you found it. Mm. Understand what I'm saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Thank you for your organizing, your efforts, your work towards the March on Washington and so much more. And thank you for joining us on Rustin, the podcast today. I enjoyed it. That was Dr. Joyce Ladner, legendary activist, scholar, and sociologist, and living history. One of the things that I think resonates with me most about what Ms. Ladner just said is this idea around making sacrifices for the broader movement. She did not focus on herself being a Black woman or the specific needs that Black women navigated at that time. She was focused on the collective liberation of Black folks. And I think that's so commendable and we should give her and so many others their flowers for that sacrifice. Because the result of that sacrifice is that we don't know their names. We don't know the names of the women who were so central to the civil rights movement at large, let alone the March on Washington specifically. And I think that's something that we should change. And so on the next episode, we're shining a light on the women that made the movement happen and how they set the groundwork for generations of activists that come behind them. You don't want to miss it. The official Rustin podcast is a production of Netflix, Pineapple Street Studios, and Slejean. It's produced by Corey Antonio Rose, and our managing producer is Aaron Kelly. The podcast is mixed by Hannes Brown with fact-checking by Dina Kleiner. Special thanks to Josh Gwynn. Gabrielle Lewis is the executive producer at Pineapple Street. From Netflix, our executive producer is David Markowitz. And then you have me, Trayvell Anderson from Slejean, as executive producer and host. 